The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans, the third chapter. I just want to say, first of all, praise God, we're at Romans 3.21. We have been wading through very dark waters to get to this point. Just so grateful that we are here and that um, we're able to look intently at this amazing passage. I'm looking at my little iPad here that controls the PowerPoint, and it's not working. Is it? I didn't do that. Thank you, Ginger. Just track with me today, okay? Make me look better than I am. Is that fair? Thank you. Romans 3, follow along as I begin reading with ver- at verse 21. But now, wow, just stop right now. But now, we have for three and a half chapters been hearing how condemned we are, how black are our hearts, how every man is condemned. And finally, we get a gasp of gospel air. But now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Besides the Bible itself, church history, I believe, provides the best and the clearest and the most articulate illustrations and insights into doctrine, into biblical truth. Isolate any doctrine and you can identify a person or an event or a council or a situation or a controversy or a triumph in church history that provides specific and peculiar insight and understanding of that doctrine. That's why church history really ought to be called historical theology, how the history of the church worked out its theological perspective. Well, the text before us is epic, to say the least. It is seismic in its impact. It is among the Himalayas, if not Mount Everest, in our doctrinal moorings and our doctrinal foundations. It's foundational to God's heart. It's the plumb line of salvation. It's the structure in God's entire perspective and outworking and inner working of salvation itself. The doctrine that we're looking at today and we'll be looking at in the coming weeks has been called by the Reformers by its Latin designation, sola fide, translated faith alone. And the history of the church has provided for us 
a towering illustration for this skyscraping doctrine. This is so important. You would expect God to illustrate this and to pound this issue home in the history of the church, not in a small way and not in a way with the volume set to low. This is mammoth. In fact, it's virtually impossible to deal with the book of Romans without considering the life and theology of Martin Luther. Before Luther was a famous reformer, remember he was studying to be a lawyer. He was studying to be a lawyer as a good Roman Catholic who believed, as all Roman Catholics did, and Roman Catholics today believe, that Jesus died for sins, that faith must be required, that grace is involved, but not alone. That the merits of man, the product of his efforts, the fruit of his works, are added to the merit of Christ in order for God to be fully satisfied. In that context, Luther was studying to be a lawyer. We talked about this early on in the book of Romans, but I want to revisit the story if I can. His studies convinced him in his uh, lawyer um, classes that righteousness and rightness is evident within laws. That the moral expression of something's right, something's wrong, and if you disobey what's right, you deserve punishment for doing what's wrong, that was embedded in his mind as he studied to be a lawyer. Well, that began to haunt him not only on a human level, but that began to haunt him on a spiritual level. Because if it were true that man were accountable to laws on a human level, then God, having a law, would contain the ultimate standard and absolute righteousness, and that any disobedience to that law would be mammoth in comparison to disobeying an earthly law. You remember it, I hope well, in July of 1505. Not that you were there, that you remember from church history. Okay, Johnny Grote might have been there, but anyway. In July of 1505, Luther found himself in a storm. And in the providence of God, this was not just a little storm. This was a horrific storm. It was one of those storms maybe that you were in as a kid, or maybe you've been at recently, where, where the lightning and the thunder are simultaneous, where lightning is so, around you, so close around you that you can feel the electricity elevating the hairs off your arm. It was so severe and so close, he was so terrified that fearing for his life, he dove into a ditch. He thought he was going to die. But instead of praying to God, he did what most Roman Catholics of that day and now did do. He, he prayed to a saint. Saint Anne, he said. Help me, and I'll become a monk. True to his word, the storm passed, and he entered the monastery. He became, much to the disappointment of his father, an Augustinian monk. Now, God's providence is very sweet because the Augustinian order were the ones who were trying to rescue biblical truth out of the tradition. He began to study. He began to devote his life to monkery. But here's the problem. As he committed himself to all the nuances, all the commitments, all the sacrifices of this monastic life, confession, prayers, penance, even self-punishment. He would lie in the winter for days in the shape of a crucifix on a cold cement slab to try to earn God's favor. 
He would go days without food, sometimes without water, until his leaders had to come and pick him up and say, if you don't eat, you're going to die. But instead of getting better because of all his efforts, his condition and his awareness of his sin and his conscience actually got worse. I love this perspective. Years later after his conversion, Luther reflected on his efforts when he was a monk, and this is what he said. I was indeed a pious monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been me. All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. Can you imagine living with Luther and him showing you up every day? You know, you would clean the floor, he would come back and clean it better. You would do this, he would do it better. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading, and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. That tells you how much he was trying to work to gain God's favor. He goes on, as a monk, I lived an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. Isn't that interesting? The more he worked, the more he tried to obey the law, the more his conscience was alive to how much he was not obeying. My conscience was restless. I could not depend on God being propitiated on my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, I actually hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. He goes on to say, I hated the righteous God himself who punishes sinners. Why? Because Luther tried if... If not anyone anymore, Luther tried to work himself to heaven. If I can be good enough, if I can give enough effort, if I can try hard enough, if I can do better than the people around me, if I'm the highest on the curve that God's grading in my monastery, if I can be the best, God will surely look down, elbow the angels, and say, there is a man after my own heart. It didn't happen. In Luther's keen mind, and Luther's vivid understanding of God's holiness, it drove him to seek answers finally in God's word. And he found the answers to his soul in, drumroll, the book of Romans. Here's what he found. God is indeed, as his conscience affirmed, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, and he found in God's word, in the book of Romans, every man is sinful. Every man, not most, every man is sinful. God's wrath is just and it's righteous, it's justified, and it's aimed at every man who is a sinner. Luther was a sinner, therefore he knew he must personally be punished. That's pretty much a summary of the first three and a half chapters of Romans. God is righteous. God demands, are you ready for this? Perfection to be in his presence. No man can attain to perfection. We are from our birth and our very first conscious decisions, sinners and rebels. And in that hopeless state, we are absolutely not only unable, but dead to any possibility of pleasing God. But now, Romans 3.21, but now. And Luther found this but now as well. Look at 
Romans 3 again and listen to verse 21 and what's going to come after that in the context of what's just been said. Every man is guilty before God. The Gentiles are absolutely voluminous and comprehensive in their pursuit and enjoyment of sin. The Jews, though blessed by God with the oracles of God, though blessed by God with the word of God, though blessed by God with the law of God, still look in judgment at the Gentiles and say, they are worse than us even though by their acts of conscience and deeds we're equally as guilty before God. And so in the first part of Romans 3, he says, there's no distinction. Everyone is unrighteous. And in fact, he says in verse 10, there is none righteous. And then he goes on and puts the exclamation point down. He spikes the ball in the end zone. There is none righteous, not even one. You can't find one good guy, one righteous woman, not one person on the planet who's righteous. Now, does he mean that every man is as sinful as they could be? No, of course not. Does he mean that every man is not nice and and every man is wicked to the fullest extent that they could pursue? No, not at all. What he is saying is no one has what's good enough to get to heaven. Why? Because God demands perfection. And to understand the glory of the grace of God in Christ, you have to come to the point where you realize I am absolutely unable as a sinner to be even righteous in the moment, much less have a full life of righteousness, of perfection that would earn me favor with God and entrance into heaven. But now in chapter 3, verse 21, we read, but now, but now, in light of the fact that every man is condemned, there's none righteous, not even one, but now. It begins the initial proclamation of the explanation of the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus that will extend throughout the rest of the book. Since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul's letter has demonstrated, it's argued the case that man, every man, every single man is dead in sin, utterly unable to generate or obtain. Two important words. Righteousness can't be generated, nor can it be earned or obtained in and of ourselves. We need serious help. There are two words that are going to be played on and um, not really contrasted, but, but overlapping in the coming few chapters. These two words are righteousness, righteousness of God in particular, and justification. Justification, as we've said all along, it has the idea of being in a court. Romans very much lays out like a trial. We're on trial and found guilty. The biggest thing we need is to be found just in front of a just God, be found righteous in front of a righteous God, have a, a righteousness that earns us favor in a perfect God's eyes, and we can't get it, we can't generate it. So we need an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness, a borrowed, a gifted righteousness that doesn't come from us or is not gained by us. So he begins to talk about the doctrine of sola fide, faith, alone in these verses. Let me give you an outline so that you can follow along a little more carefully. Four amazing details of the doctrine of sola fide. Four amazing details 
of the doctrine of sola fide. Now, I'm not trying to show off with Latin. This is just what all historians and all theologians call justification by faith alone. Sola fide, faith alone. What do we need most? We need righteousness. How do we get it? By grace, through faith alone. And Paul begins to explain that now. The first amazing detail of the doctrine of sola fide is this. Righteousness is unattainable by compliance. It's kind of a summary of what he said so far. Righteousness is not attainable, it's unattainable by compliance. But now, apart from the law, this is a surprise, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That would have shocked every Jew reading this. Wait a minute, I need righteousness, right? Yes. Righteousness is manifested, yes. Well, obviously, it's manifested through Moses and in the law, right? No. Paul's already alluded to the fact that the gospel is deeply, deeply embedded in the Old Testament. Turn back to chapter 1. In the very first sentence, in the very second verse of the epistle, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, where? In the Holy Scriptures, in the law. The gospel is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. This is not a new religion. This is a fulfilled promise. The function and the purpose of the law has never, it was never intended to justify and make righteous. Now, I, want to, I, I need to beg your grace for a minute and step aside and give you about 30 seconds on something we're going to come back to. There is a new movement in theological circles today. Fortunately, it has kind of petered out before it's gotten down to the, the level of, um, uh, of the church. It's mostly stayed in the, in the academic classrooms called the new perspective on Paul. In other words, it's a new way of looking at Paul, and the bottom line is this. Paul didn't really mean that an individual has to be made righteous and just before God. He was talking about redeeming a community. And it also deals with, uh, affirms the fact that, well, man used to be able to please God by doing the law and being a good Old Testament saint. And now you just kind of add to that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Apart from the law. Independent from the law. Yet never contradictory to the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Unless people think, well, Paul is antinomic. Antinomism. Antinomism non-law, anti-God's word, anti-God's law. He says at the end, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is not a contradiction. Go back to Romans 1 and 2. This was prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. The function then and purpose of the law has never, not in the Old Testament and not now, been able or planned to justify a sinner. Now here's what was the problem. During the time of Jesus and during the time of, of Paul, there were Jews who really believed that they, if they obeyed enough of God's law, and you add the Mishnah and the Talmud, these extra laws that they added on top of God's word, if I could obey enough, then I would be justified, I would be saved. My wife and I live in a neighborhood with many Orthodox Jews right now. 
they will walk to church, to synagogue, I shouldn't say, walk to synagogue on Saturday, and on their high and holy days will even ask Gentiles like us to come and turn their lights on and off so they don't have to work because they really think if I do enough in the law, God will wink and say, you're one of mine. It's exactly the doctrine of the Catholic Church as well. Paul is saying, and he'll say over and over, over and over, the law never justified anyone. No one was ever made perfect by obeying. Why? Because no one obeyed enough. How much is enough? Always. The law presents us with God's will, God's demands, and our failure to comply with God's standards is damnable. That's the conclusion of verses 19 and 20, right? All the world may become accountable to God. Now, don't miss the importance of the phrase in verse, one, verse 21, the righteousness of God. This is just not righteousness. It's not being good enough. This is the righteousness of God, absolute perfection, absolute standard of holiness. What is this, John Murray? I love what John Murray says. It is so intimately related to God, his righteousness, that it is a righteousness of divine property, God owns it, and characterized by divine qualities. It is a God righteousness. What's his point in verse 21? He's going to begin laying out the doctrine of sola fide. And what he wants us to know first is salvation doesn't come through Jesus and Moses. Or the way they might have thought, Moses and Jesus. The righteousness of God, look at the text, has been made to shine, made manifest, unveiled. It is discoverable. Aren't you glad you live in a day where God's righteousness is discoverable? It's been made manifest. It's not hidden. It's just as the serpent was lifted up for Israel to see on a very high place, so the righteousness of God is placed before us, clearly. He says, you know what's amazing about faith? The first thing you got to do is look at the negative. Righteousness, it's not attainable by compliance. You can't obey enough. A second amazing detail of God's doctrine of sola fide is this, in verse 22. Righteousness is... Acquired by faith. It's acquired by faith. This is so simple, but yet we could preach just reading the sermons of of church history and how much attention has been given to these following verses. We could preach on this for the next hundred years and never mind everything that's here. We're going to look at it fast in context this morning. Righteousness is acquired by faith. He says, even, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. You know, we say it sometimes, if you underline things in your Bible, if you highlight things in your Bible, if you asterisk things in your Bible, if you circle things in your Bible, this is one of those verses. Paul introduces us to the subject of faith and faith's object. This is the gospel. And if the gospel is good news, that's what the gospel means, This is the headline on the front page of the paper of the gospel. 
Let's look at the verse phrase by phrase. The righteousness of God. We've already been introduced to, the, introduced to that. It's God's absolute standard. It's his absolute righteousness. It's perfection. But the righteousness of God comes, this is shocking, through faith. Now, I want, you to, I want to ask you, just for a few weeks, we're going to talk about this for a minute, but can you put just a pause there and a comma there? You say, how does that actually work? Which would have been the exact question that the Jews and the Gentiles would have asked about this. And beginning in chapter 4, he says, let me give you an Old Testament illustration. And he, he, for a whole chapter, he illustrates that with Abraham, who believed God, and it was reckoned or accounted to him as righteousness. Wait a minute. You believe something, and in God's eyes, you become perfect? That ought to make anyone scratch their head and say, I, I don't know about that. That sounds too easy and too good to be true. So he says, the righteousness of God through faith, through believing Faith is the only avenue which God's righteousness is acquired. Listen, faith is the only avenue God's righteousness is acquired. It's not even acquired through our own good attempts at righteousness. It's true for the Jew, for the Gentile, any and everyone. But it goes on. Look at the stack. Righteousness of God through faith. Faith in what? You have to have an object in faith. Everyone's faith has an object. You're sitting in a chair right now. And know it or not, you have faith that that chair is going to hold you up. You made a decision before you sat down. This is a a good decision to sit on this. I believe it's going to hold me up. When I fly, I'm exercising a lot of faith. When you drive a car, you're exercising not only the faith in your own ability, but to a certain extent, you're exercising faith beyond your own ability, looking at the people coming on in oncoming traffic, sometimes five feet from you, that they're not going to hit you head on. What's the object of your faith for salvation? Jesus Christ. Now again, think about the original readers. Obey the law, obey the law, obey the law. What? Believe, 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 believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us to the Jews, it was utter foolishness. Who would, would God ever have a crucified Messiah? To the Gentiles, it was foolish. Ha, huh. would the king of the world be crucified with two criminals? It all came down to the cross. The gospel, the good news, is the person of Jesus Christ. Please don't miss that. The gospel is Jesus. Romans 1 Verse 1, the gospel of God at the end of the verse. Verse 3, concerning his son, the good news of God is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. That is what gives us a right standing with God, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of his righteousness. By the way, in in chapter 4, verse 5, we won't take the time to look at this deeply, but notice this. But the one who does not work but believes in God, in him, the context in the previous uh, two verses is God, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. Don't miss this. Faith in God gives you righteousness. Here, faith in Jesus gives you righteousness 
Ergo, Jesus is God. You say, what does that mean? Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Can we go back to first grade Sunday school in the last phrase? For all those who believe. For all those who believe. John 1, 12. To as many as believed, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. Biblical instruction and biblical preaching and biblical pursuit are to produce faith to believe. Listen to Luther's words again. I, Dr. Martin Luther, the unworthy evangelist of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus think and thus affirm that this article, namely that faith alone without any works justifies us before God, can never be overthrown. For Christ alone, the Son of God, died for our sins. But if he alone takes away our sins, then men with all their works are to be excluded from all concurrence in procuring the pardon of sin and justification. Nor can I embrace Christ otherwise than by faith alone. He cannot be apprehended by works. But if faith before works follow, apprehends the Redeemer, it is undoubtedly true that faith alone before works and without works appropriates the benefits of redemption, which is nothing other than justification, being right with God. What is he saying? Jesus Christ has done the work. He has been active in his obedience because of what he did. He's been passive in his righteousness because of who he was. Faith has to be anchored in him. It is so easy. It is so simple and so easy for even those of us who've given our faith to Christ to, to find ourselves in this kind of um, treadmill, this... Um, moving and moving and moving and going nowhere of thinking, yeah, I know Christ saved me, but boy, I gotta, I gotta pull my, my weight. I gotta, I gotta do my part. Yes, in obedience because he saved us. No, in obedience to help us get saved. We obey out of privilege. We obey out of love. We obey out of joy. We don't obey to make sure that God isn't looking over at Europe and hopefully he's looking at us and will notice. It's acquired by faith. We could go over uh, Puritan sermons for the rest of the century and not mine this out, but the simplicity is you ought to be able to explain this to your five-year-old. Righteousness of God comes through believing, through faith, in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Another amazing detail of the doctrine of sola fide. Thirdly, righteousness is provided for all. Righteousness is provided for all. This is a text that most people know, but it's easily taken out of context. In fact, it's used almost to, to, to make the point just the opposite that it's really making. 
At the end of verse 22, he says, For there is no distinction, for, it's connected, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, it's there to tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in context, it's saying that there's provision for everyone who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not a verse that just condemns us. It's a verse that gives us hope. It's not an overstatement to say that every single theological error ever made is related to a man or a thought process that denies some dimension of man's sinfulness. Minimizing sin and not thinking that we're as bad as we really are tarnishes the gospel. Why do we need Jesus and his righteousness if we can be just good enough? Again, I I can't improve on the words of some of these great men. John Murray says this. We are all wrong with him because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Far too frequently we fail fail to entertain the gravity of this fact. Listen, far too frequently we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact that we've all sinned. Hence, the reality of our sin and the reality of the wrath of God upon us for our sin do not come into our reckoning. This is the reason why the grand article of justification does not ring the bells in the innermost depths of our spirit. And this is the reason why the gospel of justification is, to a certain extent, meaningless and a meaningless sound in the world and the church of the 20th century. We're not imbued with the profound sense of the reality of God, of his majesty, and of his holiness. Do you think often, often enough of the need we have for salvation? I mean, do do, do you get it? Are are you leveled? Do do you ever become waylaid and say, "I, I would have been in great trouble and eternal destruction Unless what we sang earlier, God's love came down to me. Everyone sinned. Everyone's missed the mark. Everyone falls short of the glory of God, another synonym for the perfect righteousness of God. We fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is his vision of his emanating presence, of his sinlessness, and of his holiness. How can we, how can we stand in that? We fall short of it. Because of our sin. And by the way, verse 22, there's no distinction. That's every man. Which leads us to a final amazing detail in this passage of the doctrine of soul and fide. Righteousness is granted by You can put it in there if you want to. Amazing grace. Unbelievable grace. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul now pulls back the curtain and shows us what is happening in heaven in our salvation. 
A little footnote for those of you who, who do a little Greek study. This has uh, tripped some people up. It's a present active part of participle when it says being justified. It sounds like you're, there's something that happens all over and over and over. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying your realization of that you can apply and understand and love God better, but justification happened once at the cross. There are those in the new perspective who use this verse and say, see, you're constantly justified. You're not really ever done being right before God. Why? Why just for what? How? How does this work in one word, with one word? And this one word levels every works system, whether it be Judaism and Orthodox Judaism, whether it be Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Buddhism, Hinduism. One word waylays it all. What is it? The word gift. Gifts are given at no cost and no price to the recipients. That's why they are gifts. And that gift is the consequence, look at the next phrase, of God's amazing grace, where he gives us what we don't deserve. Ephesians 2.8, you know it well, for by what? By what? Grace. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not a result of yourselves. It's actually a, it's a gift. It's a gift of God. I just marvel. I, I, I have to confess, when I look at the, uh, the history of my own life, the, the sinfulness of my thoughts, the the sins of omission, things I don't do that I should, the sins of commission, things I do that I shouldn't. It's really easy for me to say, I, I'm just not worthy. I just don't deserve this. And, and I'm right. Absolutely right. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. Look at the last phrase, through the redemption. It's even better than a gift. It's a gift to people who should not have received this gift. The idea of redemption is vivid. It's a living word picture from the day that, in which Paul wrote. To redeem someone, to accomplish redemption for someone, meant to pay a necessary sum to obtain their release from a slave owner or from prison. You bought a person from a hopeless situation. They're a slave, an abused slave, unable to have their own freedom. You purchase a slave, or even worse, read the account in Matthew 18. You pay the debt for someone to get out of prison. You forgive the debt of someone to get out of an unpayable debt relationship. Paul's informing us that the only sufficient Payment to redeem sinners was paid where? At the cross, through whom? By Jesus Christ. We can't, we can't not double negative. We have to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing 
that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way of life you inherited from your forefathers. In fact, he's saying, the best money on earth, the best man can offer, all the possessions in the entire world could not purchase our redemption from our sad state of being slaves to sin and under the condemnation and wrath of God. Then verse 19, he says, but, but, you weren't, you weren't redeemed with money, but with precious blood. He doesn't even say blood. Precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. Everything. Everything in the gospel comes back to and flows from the person of Jesus Christ. A Christless Christianity is a works-based religion. There are only two religions in the world, religions that say you can work your way to heaven and religion, one religion that says only Christ has accomplished that work and it's a gift. You can have it. How? By believing. And if you're like me, and if you're like the readers that Paul was addressing, you ought to say, that's way too simple. There has to be more to it. I have to cross a T. I have to dot an I. I have to do more. Try harder. Pray more. Fast more. I have to be like Lutheran. Lay freezing on a cement slab. And then maybe God will say, good job. Are you shocked and surprised and overwhelmed by grace as a gift received through faith? You ought to be. The rest of the three chapters we're going to be looking at, Paul is basically saying, no, I really mean it. No, no, really. I know you don't think it's that simple. I know you don't think it's that easy. I really believe that. I'm really telling you that grace is granted, righteousness is obtained, perfection is received by believing in Jesus. Romans is an exclamation point after the word wow. And I hope, I hope that you have the wrestling match in your own heart that I have in mind going, well, yeah, but you have to obey. Well, but yeah, but you have to go to church. Well, yeah, but you, there is no yeah, but you have to. There is a yeah, but you get to. I love the fact that we call people to submit to Christ's lordship. And we should. But never at the expense of telling them that grace and salvation are free gift. It's free. You don't have to do something except to believe. Isn't it wonderful in God's providence that he had us look at this passage on the day we were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? I mean, we didn't plan this out months ago. What a gracious gift because we now get to celebrate his unspeakable gift at the expense of the death of his son for those who would believe. Would you bow with me for a minute? That's some men to prepare as we look to 
Do what this table calls us to do. Two primary things with a consequent result. Remember the cross, remember our Savior, and examine ourselves. And the consequence of that will be we will proclaim his death until he returns. We will never forget what it costs for us to believe. This table is a time in which we get to reflect and worship. We're going to pass the the bread in a moment, and as the men do that, just take it, hold it, we'll take it together. But think about those sins that Christ has forgiven and died for and received fresh grace to be able to, to repent, to deepen your faith. Father, we're humbled. It doesn't seem like it should work this simply or this easy. No other religion, no earthly mind would invent this. So as we sing, give us fresh remembrances of the sin that you've forgiven so that we can repent in fresh awarenesses of the gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.